Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We're continuing this week a study in the book of Daniel. And so I want to give you a quick recap before we dive in. So this will be like at the beginning of some TV shows where we say, previously on. Okay? So, previously on the book of Daniel, here's what we've seen. The king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, a fellow by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, has taken captive some of the Hebrew people from Judah. And among these captives, there is this excellent young man called Daniel. And Daniel has been a faithful servant in this pagan court while also maintaining his loyalty and faithfulness to the one true God, the Hebrew God. In addition to Daniel being taken captive, there are other captives, and among them, we have three other excellent young Hebrew men called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And last week, in last week's episode, we saw that they refused to bow down to an idol that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and because they refused, and because they were disobedient to Nebuchadnezzar, he was going to throw them into a fiery furnace to kill them. And he did throw them into a fiery furnace... But God stepped in miraculously. In this case, he literally stepped in to the fiery furnace and saved them from the blaze. And they came out, and Nebuchadnezzar started to kind of come around to the Hebrew God and started to recognize there's something special about this God that they serve. So now to this week's episode in chapter 4. Chapter 4 has a change in perspective. An interesting literary thing happens here in chapter four. The first three chapters have been written in third person. So they're written from an outsider's perspective. It talks about Daniel doing this or Nebuchadnezzar doing that. In this chapter, we change to the first person perspective so that we're gonna go inside the mind of one of the people in the story. And so, of course, in the book of Daniel, you might expect that we would go into the perspective of Daniel and hear from him directly. But we don't hear from Daniel. And we don't hear from Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, the other Hebrew heroes of the book of Daniel. No, of all people, we go into the mind of none other than Nebuchadnezzar himself, the pagan ruler of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the formerly pagan, as we'll see, ruler of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and we learn from him. Chapter 4 takes the form of a royal proclamation given out to the entire world that explains how Nebuchadnezzar had an experience with the one true God, that changed him and led him to believe that there is one God who rules over all and led him to worship that God. Although this is a message, a proclamation that comes from a culture very different than our own and a time far removed from our own, it has a message that all people desperately need to hear. So let's hear it starting in verse one, chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. So here in the opening of this proclamation, we see that it comes from Nebuchadnezzar and it's addressed to the entire world. He says, all peoples, nations, and languages. And he gives them this benediction, the sense of desiring the best for them by saying, peace be multiplied to you. Verse two, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. Notice the word for here. It would be easy to write, notice, (laughs) it would be easy to write here what God did to me because we're going to see God punish him in some way. But Nebuchadnezzar has come to understand that this punishment that he's gone through has really been a learning experience that was for his benefit. An important point here in this passage. Verse 3, how great are his signs, talking about God, and how mighty his wonders His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. This is the type of language that might be used by an ancient emperor about his own kingdom. But here, Nebuchadnezzar is using it about a different kingdom, a transcending kingdom, one greater than his own, the kingdom of God. Verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. 
He says, listen, I was doing all right. I was doing pretty good. But something came up, a problem entered his life. Verse five, I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in and told, and I told them the dream. So he brought in all the kind of masters of the occult and all of the people who were engaged in high-level learning, the scribes, the people who were involved in the history of the kingdom, the philosophers. He brings all of those people together, tells them the dream, but they can't tell them what it means. But at last, Daniel came before me. At last, Daniel. We don't know what the cause of the delay was here, but for some reason, Daniel came last, and he comes in, and then we get a parenthetical from Nebuchadnezzar. He says, his name is Belteshazzar. This is the name that Nebuchadnezzar had given Daniel. So he says, his name is Belteshazzar according to the name of my God. He'd given him a name related to one of the gods of Babylon. And then he says this about Daniel, in him is the spirit of the holy God. He recognized that there was a special concentration of God's divine presence in Daniel. And I told the dream before him saying, Belteshazzar, that's Daniel again, chief of the magicians. Notice that Daniel now has a very prominent role amongst the learned men of Babylon. Because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold. Okay, so let's all of us take a second here and I want us all to imagine the vision in our minds, have visual imagery here of this surreal and interesting vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar as we read it. A tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. A tree bigger than any tree that's ever existed, a tree that is just gigantic, way up into the sky, and it could be seen from anywhere. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and, it, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, the birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher a holy one coming down from heaven. A watcher is like an angelic being, a sentry given by God to watch over creation. And so this figure comes down into this vision and he cried aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. This was a tree of surpassing beauty and a vision of great beauty. And this watcher, this angelic figure comes down and says, destroy it. Strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. That is, don't entirely uproot the tree, and that means that there is the possibility that this tree could regrow in the future. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Here we had a transition. Notice the use of the personal pronoun his in that previous verse. It becomes clear through the use of this pronoun that the tree in the dream represents a person, a he. Continuing in verse 16, let his heart be changed from that of a man, let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. The word times in the Aramaic in which this passage is written just means times, so that's an equivocal word. It could have any number of meanings. It could mean years or seasons. Probably it means years. Most of the commentators think it means years. So seven years with the heart of a beast. Verse 17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers, these angelic beings who serve God by watching the earth. 
and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. Take note of that final phrase given to us from the angelic watcher. God sets over the kingdom of men the lowest of men. We'll return to that idea at the conclusion of the sermon today. Continuing in verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, remember that's Daniel, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time and his thoughts troubled him. Daniel's troubled because he knows that this dream bodes ill. Now, we can't go much deeper than that. He may be upset because he has, at this point in his career, a genuine affection for Nebuchadnezzar, and he doesn't want bad things to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't want to share bad news with him because of that affection. That's a possibility. There's another possibility. It's possible that he's afraid Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose his temper and shoot the messenger in this case, or something like that. Maybe it's a mix of these types of emotions or something else, but in any case, he is troubled, and in the ensuing verses, we see that Nebuchadnezzar says, just tell me. So... Continuing there in verse 19, so the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. Daniel goes on over the next several verses to restate the dream and to explain to Nebuchadnezzar that he is the tree that is destroyed and that he will be transformed into someone with the heart of a beast who's gonna go eat grass in the fields and be like an animal for seven years. Let's pick up now at verse 25 there. They shall drive you from men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and they shall make you eat grass like an oxen. They here is probably a reference to these watchers. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, in other words, since they left it and it could regrow, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Okay, so now we've moved from the interpretation into a period of wise counsel. Daniel is saying, given this interpretation, here's some advice. Here's the advice that he gives him. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel knows the character of the God who has issued through the watchers this sentence on Nebuchadnezzar and he knows that this God receives repentant hearts. That's something that is clear throughout the Hebrew Bible and throughout the New Testament. God is merciful and when people turn from their destructive ways, he will have mercy and redeem those people. But unfortunately, it seems that Nebuchadnezzar did not take heed to this warning and this advice from Daniel. It seems that he didn't repent fully, or he didn't repent at all, or maybe his repentance didn't last long. We just don't know. All we know is this, verse 28. All this, all we've talked about, came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 29, at the end of the 12 months, So here in our episode this week, we go to black and we've got a title card that says 12 months later. He, Babylon, was, or he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke saying, now listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says here. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor 
of my majesty. Historians and archaeologists tell us that Nebuchadnezzar was a prolific builder. He commissioned and oversaw the construction of many magnificent structures in the ancient Babylonian kingdom, empire. In fact, one hypothesis holds that he was the person responsible for the hanging gardens of Babylon. Now, the hanging gardens weren't technically hanging. There's kind of a, a quirk of translation that's led to them having that name. But in any case, they were one of the wonders of the ancient world, according to the Hellenists. And what they looked like was this. They were a structure of tiers, of terraces that were built up into the sky. And on each terrace was a verdant garden of many different types of plants. And the reason, according to this hypothesis, that Nebuchadnezzar built this hanging garden, so-called, is because he had a wife who was from a different region, a less desert region, and she missed the green hills of her home, and so he built her a green hill there in the city of Babylon. Aw, right, it was nice, it was a, Nebuchadnezzar, it was a nice thing for him to do, if, if it is true that he built it. Here's what we do know, he built a lot, and he built a lot of magnificent buildings, edifices. And so we see beyond that, though, in this passage, not only had he built these things, but he took an obscene level of pride in what he had done. He says, look what I've done for my honor, for my majesty, by my power. And that pride, like all pride, comes before a fall, a fall predicted in a nocturnal vision one year before this happened. Verse 31, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Okay, imagine this one of the most powerful men in the world, maybe the most powerful man in the world at this time, a man used to being arrayed in the greatest finery that could be produced, a man who lived a life of luxury, transformed now into a beast, crawling around on the ground, pulling up grass with his teeth, covered in dirt, hair overgrown, nails overgrown, teeth stained green from eating grass all of the time, a man of former splendor and luxury now living as an animal in the wild. Verse 34, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, that is, they're nothing compared to him. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. This is a remarkable moment in the history of the world. One of the great rulers of one of the great empires had an experience, and as a result of that experience, he said, now I realize there is a God over all the others, and I praise and honor and extol that king, the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways 
justice. Notice there's a hint from Daniel that all of Nebuchadnezzar's ways were not justice. He said in particular that Nebuchadnezzar should take care of the poor in his kingdom. That should be something that he should do in his repentance. Here Nebuchadnezzar realizes even in his imperfection there is another king who is perfect, who is just, who does take care of all. And finally, to end the chapter, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. What a story, right? It's great. And you know, it's not only a great tale, it's one that pertains to all of us. And so, you know, I look at this story and I was going through it and I was thinking, you know, I've got about 25 applications, okay? We're not actually gonna have 25 applications, let me set your mind at ease before you hustle for the door there. Just three, three applications we can draw from the passage today that I'll leave you with. The first is this, recognize all accomplishments are by God's grace, something that Nebuchadnezzar should have done. The second is be teachable, And the third is invest in others. We see here that Nebuchadnezzar eventually became teachable the hard way. And we see that not only was he teachable, but eventually he turned around and said, what I've learned from my experience is I want others to learn from as well so that they can be better. So he invested in others. We need to follow his lead. Okay, first application, recognize all accomplishments are by God's grace. It's easy for us to have something similar to the attitude of Nebuchadnezzar. Probably none of us will be emperors someday. Sorry, it's just very unlikely. hate to crush any dreams here. But we all, even in our various places in life, our various statuses in life, can have an attitude similar to this one. We can walk around and say, look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I'm doing. Look who I hang out with. Look at all this. Aren't I great? Snap our suspenders a little bit. I should have worn suspenders today, I know. I didn't do it. It's, it's too late now. I actually don't have a pair. I haven't worn suspenders since I was a toddler, as it were, but maybe I'll get some. Enough about my clothing. So we all have a tendency to have the attitude of Nebuchadnezzar's the point. We can say, look what I've done, look who I am, and we take credit for it. And the problem with this is not only is it wrong because it's you know, ridiculous to be prideful and people can't abide other prideful people, and all, but you gotta remember, at the root of pride, like at the root of all sin, there's this gross misperception. And here's the misperception. We think that our abilities and our opportunities come from us, and they don't. (laughs) Our abilities and opportunities come from God. Now some people, in your mind right now, I know, some people are thinking, well I have developed my abilities through tens of thousands of hours of practice and labor. Or I create my own opportunities through hard work. That's great, that's good. But still the principle remains because the capacities that you have that allow you to develop abilities, the time that you have to give to practice to develop your abilities, the opportunities that you create for yourself with your abilities to work, all of that ultimately is not coming from you. You didn't choose the genes that you have, you didn't choose the opportunities that you were born into, God chose all of that. All good things come from God in our lives. My favorite verse, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. It's all by God's grace. We exist by his grace, we persist by his grace, our abilities are by his grace, our opportunities are by his grace, our capacities to develop our abilities and opportunities are by his grace. It's God's grace all the way down and that means whenever we have accomplishments in life, we like Nebuchadnezzar should not look around and say, look what I've done and look how great I am. It means we should turn to God and say, look how great he is and say to him, you are great, thank you for what you've given me, thank you for opportunities, thank you for abilities, help me to use them for you and for other people. That's the attitude we have to have that combats this destructive pride and that is in line with reality and that makes us even more empowered to do some good in the world.
So we've got to leave the pride behind when we have accomplishments and have gratitude for the God who's given us those opportunities. No pride, gratitude in those moments of accomplishment and success. Application two today is be teachable. We must all recognize that we have room for growth and we should seek to learn so that we can grow. Nebuchadnezzar was sent a dire warning. He was not teachable at first, it seems. Right? He was sent a warning. He was sent an interpretation of that warning. He was sent someone who told him to repent. But like I said, we didn't get a full repentance from him, or maybe any repentance at all. He continued in his evil and prideful ways. He had a hardened heart, so he learned the hard way. That's a good preaching phrase there, if I say so myself. Hard heart led to him learning the hard way. So, that's the situation. Now, we don't have to be like that. We can learn the easy way. We can be sensitive to the wake-up calls that come to us. So let me ask you a very serious question here. Do you have something in your life, some kind of destructive behavior that's hurting you, that's hurting the people around you? Do you have something in your life that, that could easily become destructive? Maybe it's not bad in and of itself, but it could become destructive very soon in some way. Something that could spin out of control into an addiction or something like that. Do you have an addiction in your life? Do you have something like this going on in your life right now? If something is coming to mind for you, and for most of us, something should be coming to mind. Just, we're all struggling with things. If something's coming to mind right now, that's the wake-up call. There it is. Respond in a teachable manner to the wake-up call that you're getting right now. And think, okay, it's time to change. It's time to talk to somebody. It's time to confess. It's time to read. It's time to study. It's time to change my daily habits. It's time to move beyond this behavior. I'm going to receive that wake-up call, be teachable, and move on to a better life, the life that God wants me to lead, the life that God made me to lead. Being open to wake-up calls also means being open to criticism. In the MBA class that I teach, we talk about how to give criticism, of course. That's a very difficult thing to do, is, is tell people you know, how to improve in the future. And really, the key to it, this one's for free here, the key to it is you talk about the future, not about the past. So you talk about the future as much as possible when you give constructive feedback. And so we talk about that, and that's one of the obvious things that you talk about. But it, one of the things that we also need to talk about is how to receive criticism. If we really want to be leaders and grow as people, we have to learn to receive criticism. And we have to receive it with an open mind and open heart. Is there some unjust criticism that's given to us? Yes, there is. But we have to overcome our pride, which we've just discussed, that tells us all the time, ah, I mean, I'm being criticized, but I'm basically perfect. I mean, really. <laughs> and we know that we have that deep inside of us for this reason. We don't like to receive criticism, even if it's just. We don't like it because we think, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not as bad as this person. <laughs> Or we think, ah, it's, I'm, I'm good enough, or something like that. No, we have to have open minds and open hearts to criticism because criticism can be a huge blessing. It can help us to overcome great difficulties and pain in the future and help us to be better people. You know, forgive me for being blunt as I make this point, but we are all, myself included, every single person in this room, colossally ignorant. There is lots of room for growth. And so not only do we have to be open to wake-up calls and be teachable there, be teachable with criticism, we just need to learn to have, as much as we can, a learning orientation towards life. We are presented with learning opportunities constantly. We just have to see them as such. We see the difficulties in our life as learning opportunities. Doing that can be enormously helpful. And, you know, we all pay lip service to, you know, being a lifelong learner and stuff like that. I, you know, I work in education, teach at Missouri State, and so we all have to talk about lifelong learning, preparing people for lifelong learning, okay, all this stuff. 
But really, at heart, it's kind of hard to be a lifelong learner because we like to be static, and learning can be quite difficult. It can be difficult to face the things that we don't know. It can be difficult to struggle with knowledge and all those things. But it's worth it because it's through that that we grow and we become better. But here I must give a warning, an important warning. There's a good way and a bad way. There's a good attitude and a bad attitude with which to approach the acquisition of knowledge. We must not be out there seeking knowledge and seeking learning for prideful reasons. Paul wrote in the New Testament, I'm gonna use the King James wording because it's just so great. He wrote, knowledge puffeth up. Puffeth up, come on. Knowledge puffeth up, charity edifieth. The principle underlying that verse is this. Knowledge in and of itself is just something that makes you feel smart. But what's really important is charity or love. And when that is undergirding the pursuit of knowledge, then we're not pursuing knowledge just so we can be smart and look smart and sound smart to the people around us. No, in that case, we're pursuing knowledge so that we can know more about God, so we can better serve him, so we can know more about people in the world, so we can better serve people in the world. And that's the attitude. The attitude of love leading to learning is the attitude that we must have whenever we're seeking to be learning people. I just said that one of the important parts of learning is having the right attitude so that we can reach other people and help other people. So that brings us to the third point today, which is that we need to not only be learners, people growing in experience and wisdom, but also in our own way, teachers. You don't need to be an actual paid teacher to be a teacher. You don't need to be, that is, a professional instructor to invest in people who are less experienced than you or people who are younger than you. That's something that we all need to do. Nebuchadnezzar didn't simply learn his lesson Again, he had to learn it the hard way. He eventually did learn it. He eventually was teachable after he crawled around on the ground for seven years. But he got there. But he didn't just hoard that knowledge that had been given to him through that experience. What he did was he wrote a proclamation using his power that he could send to the entire world. He had a unique place of power to share what had happened with him, his experiences, with the entire world. And so he invested in anybody who would hear that proclamation read aloud by telling them what happened to him and telling, him, telling them that he had come to worship the Most High God. So we have to adopt that attitude of wanting to invest in others based on our experiences, based on the blessings of our own knowledge that we've received from God. So let's take a minute here and talk nerd stuff. Let's, let's take two minutes to talk nerd stuff. <laughs> a maximum of two and a half minutes talking nerd stuff. So the point is this. There was a new show that started on Friday. Two episodes were released. What am I talking about? Obi-Wan Kenobi, come on. All right? So no spoilers. No spoilers, don't worry. But I'm going to talk about Obi-Wan for just a second. Obi-Wan was introduced to us in 1977. I mean, I wasn't alive then, but you know what I'm getting at here. Obi-Wan was introduced in 1977 played by the legendary Sir Alec Guinness, as a mentor figure to Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars, the first Star Wars movie that you know, spawned this incredible franchise that we all know and some of us love today. Not everyone does love it. But it, it spawned this incredible franchise, multimedia, you know, comics, books, all this stuff, TV shows, movies. And George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, has been asked over the years, why are your movies so successful? Notice the hilarious subtext of that question. They're saying, why are these ridiculous, silly space operas that you created, why do people like them so much? Do you have an explanation for this? People are more tactful than that, of course, when they ask the question, but they ask, what is the account that you give for the popularity of Star Wars? And this is his answer. He said, he wrote Star Wars using archetypes, psychological archetypes, and these are patterns of storytelling that we see across historical and cultural boundaries throughout humanity's stories. So fairy tales, novels, movies, TV shows, and 
any other form of storytelling, from oral traditions, ancient epic poems, okay, all these have certain patterns within them from which we can learn. And George Lucas said he studied those, and he included those archetypes of those patterns of storytelling in the story, and he thinks it resonated deeply with the psychology of viewers, and that's the reason for its success. One of the archetypes is the archetype of the mentor. That's the archetype that Obi-Wan fulfills in the Star Wars films. And the reason that we see this mentor archetype it's so simple, and yet it needs to be stated. We need people who are more experienced to invest in people who are less experienced for the betterment of the people who have less experience and for the betterment of the future of our race and of the world. We need people who have more experience seeking out to actively invest in people who have less experience. There was another pop culture phenomenon released this weekend, Top Gun Maverick, which I also watched. Pretty great. <laughs> and so... In this movie, it's also about the same theme. Again, no spoiler here. It's the same theme. It's a person who has experience in the world, who doesn't necessarily want to, but who's drawn back into investing in young people and investing in people who need to learn about what is possible and what are the boundaries and how can we push those boundaries. So we all need to have this attitude in our lives of thinking, where can I be investing in the people around me using the experiences that I have? Now, here's what I'm not saying right now. I'm not saying you need to go around spouting unsolicited advice to anyone who'll listen to you and bloviating about your personal life experiences to people. That's not what I'm saying right now, okay? What I'm saying is we need to look at people around us that we might be able to help and we can approach them tactfully and ask, hey, can I help you in some way? You know, whatever that may be. Say, hey, I notice you're dealing with this or I notice you're doing this, I used to do that. Would you like to talk about it? And then, of course, if someone comes to us, we have to be willing to respond with a yes. When people come to us and say, hey, would you help me with something? We have to always be ready to respond with a yes. The normal response for most of us, unfortunately, is, and we may not say it out loud, but we're thinking, well, I'm really busy. Can I add another thing to my... We need to lose that. We have the privilege of knowledge and experience, and that needs to be something that we're sharing with other people, period. And you don't have to be an aged, white-bearded man like Obi-Wan or Gandalf, okay, to be a good mentor or to be someone who is investing in other people. You can be any gender, you can be any age. You could be an eighth grader starting school in the fall and you could see sixth graders who are coming into this new junior high experience. They are scared, they don't know the teachers, they don't know their way around the school necessarily very well. And you can notice that and you can go and say, hey, can I help you find something? Or are you taking that teacher here, let me help you out with what you should be doing in that class? Those types of things. That's exactly what we're talking about here. A more experienced person looking for a less experienced person and looking for an opportunity to help them and seeing if they want help and if they want it, giving it. This can be at work, at school, outside in your social life. You see someone struggling with something that you've struggled with and overcome. If you've struggled with anything in your life and overcome it, you need to be looking for other people who are struggling right now so that you can invest in them if they want help. That's something we should all be doing. On this note, I wanna share something with you that I shared with my Sunday school class, the companion class, a few weeks ago. Shout out to the companion class. They're not in here, they're having Sunday school right now, but you know, I, just, I wanted to do the shout out there. I knew there wasn't gonna be any woo from this service, <laughs> but I got it in the last service. There was a woo, actually, thank you. No, but we got it in the last service. Anyway, I, I was teaching the companion class and I brought up this, this phrase that we all hear, kids these days. The older generation complains about the younger generation and always has through all of human history. I'm not just saying that because I have some intuitive belief that the older generation complains about the younger generation. There are documents from the ancient world that show the older generations complaining about the younger generations. Indeed, the writings of Plato include just such a passage of complaining. 
Okay, so, and by the way, fundamentally the complaints that were given about the younger generation are the exact same complaints that you hear today. They don't have very much respect, they don't have the respect level that we had, they're not as active as we were, they live these you know, sedentary lives. It's all the same stuff. It's been the same stuff for literally thousands of years. It's like kids these days. Okay, here's the issue with this, here's the problem. Kids these days are raised by the older generations. There's a fundamental logic flaw here, right? We need to learn to not be people who complain about the younger generation and whine about the younger generation and complain about people who are less experienced. We need to be people who are looking for opportunities to invest in the younger generation and help the younger generations and help the less experienced. You know, people say kids these days, I have a unique perspective on kids these days. You know, I'm, I'm hesitant to share my perspectives on life and things like this, but this is a perspective I think pertains to what we're talking about right now, this idea of investing in other people and sharing our experiences. I see kids these days as they're transitioning out of kids these days into young adults these days. I see people, most of students, 18 to 22, roughly in that age range. And are some of them lazy? Sure. Are some of them disrespectful? Yeah, there's some of that. Are most of them? Definitely not. And here's what I see. I see young people desperate to have someone invest in them. I see young people desperate for mentors. I see young people desperate for encouragement, for learning so that they can grow and so that they can do something in the world. And I see far more of them than I see people willing to invest in them. That's what I see. And so the challenge is, are you willing to look around and look for those people who are seeking to be invested in and find them and start investing? We all need to be doing it. It's an important part of being a Christian. You know, as we conclude today, I want us to examine the fact that this proclamation from Nebuchadnezzar concludes with praises to God. This could have gone differently. Nebuchadnezzar could have come out of this cursing God, but he didn't. He came out praising God. And I think we've got a clue to the reason whenever we examine Nebuchadnezzar's biography. Nebuchadnezzar was a cruel dictator. He perpetrated great evil in the world. He indulged in outrageous pride, and he knew that. And he didn't have a God who came along who could have just struck him down and put him in the grave. That's not what happened. God came along and sent him a warning, and sent him a prophet, and through the prophet sent him a potential way out. And even then, as the pride persisted for 12 months, whenever God stepped into his life. He stepped in with a punishment, yes, but a punishment that was a learning experience. He said in his proclamation, I want to tell you what God's done for me. He recognized that he deserved death, but what he received was redemption, new understanding, and new life, praising the king of heaven. This is what God wants to do in all of our lives. We're not evil like Nebuchadnezzar was, but all of us are sinners. We've all engaged in these destructive behaviors, and God wants to step into our lives and redeem us out of those behaviors. Recall that in Nebuchadnezzar's letter, he said that God will give kingdoms to the lowliest of men. I believe this is a foreshadowing of Jesus, God in the flesh, who came as a humble peasant, as a person who worked with his hands, a lowly man, who taught radical love and acceptance. At the end of his earthly ministry, he died a death of agony on a cross, such that in doing so, God, through his death, through the second person of the Holy Trinity, could confront the powers of sin and death and darkness and overcome them at the cross. Three days later, he rose again, and now the resurrected Christ, King of the universe, 
king of the kingdom to which Nebuchadnezzar alluded that is greater than all kingdoms, is calling everybody to be a part of the kingdom and everybody to contribute to the kingdom. Let me ask you just to bow your heads with me for just a moment, please.